Mark chapter 15. You can see this morning that uh, our word today is the word of abandonment. And it's, it's actually the only word or saying of Christ from the cross that has two gospel accounts of it. Uh, the rest of them are only found in one place. So you have two from John that we've seen, and one from Luke, and then here you have Matthew and both Mark recording this one saying of Jesus, which is going to be extremely important for us this morning. <clears throat> so if you'll look at Mark chapter 15, and we'll start with verse 33 and move to... 39. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. Let us pray. Lord, we thank You for Your holy Word. Your Word that is written for us. Your Word that is written to us. By Your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, would the same author, the same Spirit of this text be in our midst this morning as we contemplate, as we are challenged by this Word of Jesus from the cross. We pray in His blessed name. Amen. The term Lent means spring. And as you know, spring is a time where there's more light. It's almost moving from darkness to light. It's the darkness and the dreariness of the overshadowed winter. Almost a hibernating kind of thing. I mean, Jessica and I get both depressed when the sun goes away, so to speak, for winter. Uh, there's no, when you go outside and the sun is shining, there's no warmth on your face. There's no risk of sunburn as I had the other day when I went fishing. Not only that, but when the light comes and the warmth comes, fruit is the result. So you go from darkness to light, barren to very fruitful in the spring, which is why a lot of people like the spring. Now, of course, as we've already heard from the chorus of Clearing Throats this morning, so too mine, uh, it also has its repercussions. But nonetheless, spring is a great time. 
It's a happy time. Colors start coming out. I mean, people start wearing, you know, very bright colors uh, like all my children are in this morning. Um, it's a great time. And so Lent actually means spring. So you often think of Lent as kind of a negative term maybe in the sense of self-denial. But actually it's more of a positive term. It's a turning from darkness to the light. It's a turning in our own hearts from being barren to being very fruitful. And what you find out maybe during your Lenten fast is when you cut off something that is a time consumer, when you cut off something that means something to you, that you are more fruitful for the kingdom of God at the end of the day. And I think our text this morning has this spring kind of feel to it in the sense that there is great darkness here. I mean, the first scene that Mark gives to us and Matthew follows suit as well. I mean, these two are basically the same account. The only thing that changes is the uh, Aramaic saying, Eloi, Eloi, Leme Sabachthani. Um, which apparently Matthew followed the Targum, which is a Jewish thing. But nonetheless, that's really the only difference in the two accounts. Both of them start with, with this saying here, and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So pretty much once Jesus was put on the cross, there was darkness. And if you've, again, you've ever seen the Passion of the Christ, you know... Uh, or at least you can see kind of mentally, visually here, what it would be like for all of a sudden there to be an eclipse. And if there was an eclipse, normally when that happened for pagan people, they would think that a king had died. If If the darkness was over the face of the world because of an eclipse, then they would have said, okay, something's going on. Because with with pagans, anything that happens in nature is not just some kind of mechanical function of nature that we can just understand analytically if we only understood science, but instead something's going on in our world. In other words, if a tornado comes early, then that's an omen of the kind of season we're going to have. Or maybe it's an omen that we're not going to have one at all. But the point is, anything that happens in nature is not mechanical, but instead actually something to do with the gods. And so, for people who would have been standing around, and these soldiers as well, that's probably some of the stuff that's going through their mind, is this is weird. You know, here's this unique character, Jesus, and now the sun has stopped shining, so to speak. There's darkness over the land. Not only this, but this is not just a physical darkness, but instead the physical darkness of this scene is only eclipsed, if you will, by the spiritual darkness that Jesus Himself is going through. This is probably one of the darkest sayings of Jesus in all of His ministry. And it's from the cross again. Just like we looked at last week with uh, the word of relationship when the soldiers are not even paying attention to Jesus or Him and His mother and the grief and sorrow that's there, we too ought to do ourselves a favor this week and truly meditate upon these words of Christ. My God, my God, which is more or less in the Aramaic said as a declaration. My God, my God, almost positively, whereas 
in the Aramaic you have, uh, which not a lot of the Bible is in Aramaic, but this is. <clears throat> he says that in the question form, it's where it becomes negative. So this is a direct address. My God, my God, then why have you forsaken me? This is where the negativity comes in. This is where the negative aspect of the questioning comes in. And, you know, scholars, theologians, readers of the Bible have looked at this, read this, and all of them, it brings a stillness like what Rachel just talked about. Sometimes it's better just almost not to say anything if you don't know what to say. And I almost have to come to this text telling you I don't have much to say concerning this. It's almost self-evident and yet there are some things this morning we can say about this declaration. This, as it's also called, dereliction, which is abandonment. This is called the cry of dereliction, which is the cry of abandonment. God has forsaken him in this minute, in this moment. And yet, he is God. As Luther said many years ago, in this passage, we have God forsaking God. (laughs) Some of the deepest of mysteries in our world. This saying here is one of the more famous of His from the cross sayings that we're going to look at. Um, And yet it's one of the most misunderstood, enigmatic, mysterious, whatever you want to call it. It's very difficult to understand. He takes on darkness in His own body. The darkness that is around everyone that's visible, there's a deeper darkness that is in our Lord as He's on the cross. And this darkness is the darkness of sin. Isaiah talks about how when one is sinning and going into iniquity... God doesn't hear from heaven. God turns His face away. And yet what's fascinating about this is Jesus isn't sinning. (laughs) He's actually doing something good. He's actually doing what is right and holy and blameless and courageous. And yet, what He's doing is taking on our sin. So at the same time He's doing something good, He's absorbing the bad. Now, again, analogies fail when we get into the deep mysteries of the Gospel. I mean, there is no analogy. There's no one-to-one in our world. Um, However, one that the early church fathers used, which I've always found fascinating, and which is not used today hardly ever in any messages or sermons that I listen to, is they said the only way that God chose to defeat Satan was as if he was fishing. Now, you may not like fishing or maybe never done it. But at least you've seen it for sure. And you know how it works. And that is, you have to trick the fish in order to get the fish on your hook. It's really about tricking them. 
You, know, you put the minnow on there, and they think, oh, we're about to get breakfast or lunch or dinner. And in fact, they get a hook, and you take them out. Whether it's a jig or a live minnow, you're tricking them into biting something they think is real, they think is going to be good, in order to serve your purpose, which is to eat them. And early church fathers said, this is exactly what God has done to Satan. And he's dressed up Jesus as sin in order that death, which is Satan's greatest weapon against us, he's the author of death, in order for Satan to bite on it, to finally say, we've got him. And as soon as he bites down, he feels that his kingdom has already slipped from his hand. Because the truth is, death, the death of Christ, swallows up death in victory. And he pulls him out of the water so that he no longer has any power at all to scare us, to bring fear to us. Death is dead at this moment. Because... Christ endures death for us in our place. (laughs) It's a pretty powerful analogy. He tricks Satan. Wait for it. Wait for it. He dies. Satan thinks he's victorious. And as soon as he bites, he realizes it was a trick. Now, another maybe story that is helpful in illustrating this is none other than the great... C.S. Lewis in his Chronicles of Narnia where the witch thinks she has Aslan. She thinks that she has tricked him by his own rules. Remember? The whole reason he's on the table is because, as they say, the magic that was written into the world, he broke. And so he had to come pay the penalty because this kid broke it. And so instead of the kid dying, Aslan chooses to die in his place and for him. So Aslan never breaks the the magic of the universe. But instead, uh, what is his name? Edmund, yes. Edmund breaks it. And because of that, someone has to pay with blood. And so Aslan chooses to do this. And you remember this from the, from the movie or from the story. And as soon as the witch kills him, as soon as everything is... Everybody's celebrating. And it's, it's such a... Man, it's a powerful scene in the, both the book and, and in the movie. Remember when his resurrection event, he tells the children later, he says what she didn't understand is there's a deeper magic here at work. There's something deeper in the universe than just rules. Yes, the rule was to die, but through death would come this great life. And, of course, Narnia is saved. And Lewis illustrates it beautifully. And this morning, he died in your place. He died for you. He died for me. 
It is in our place. And, and just as Edmund didn't understand totally what he had gotten himself into, just as we do not totally understand what we've gotten ourselves into, he still has done it. It's already finished. It is already a work that is accomplished. And so this week, this day, this minute that we have together here in this service is a time where we ought to stop and be silent before God and say, Lord, I don't understand what all you went through. I mean, one of the worst things when someone is suffering is to say that you understand what they're going through because you don't. Even if you have lost a child and then somebody else loses a child, you still don't know what they're going through because you're not them. It's one of the most incompassionate things to say. Start talking about yourself and how you got through it. That's not always helpful. Most of the time what's best to do in a situation of suffering is just simply to be there. God suffered. God died. God, worst of all, took on sin and was separated from God as He was God. There's many ways to look at what this is saying by this forsakenness, this abandonment, but we know this is a real abandonment. God is not putting on a show here. Just as in the garden when He prayed and said, Lord, please take this cup from me, prayed so hard that sweat came from His forehead, asked His disciples to pray with Him, and they fell asleep. Just as He labored for us, He was forsaken for us. What a deep mystery it is. What a deep separation it was. In the movie, The Passion of the Christ, it's pictured as a tear from heaven dropping. You remember in the movie from the Father? It's a powerful moment in the movie. Where God condemns sin in Christ. And through that is our redemption. Through looking at the cross, through looking at the ugliness of my sin that nails Him there, of looking at the darkness of this situation. This is probably the darkest moment in human history. We're not just killing a good general who could have done many good things. We're not just killing a good prophet. We're not just killing a good man. We're killing God because of my sin. It's probably the darkest moment in human history. And yet, every year, we take time to look at the cross. When I was with Pappy... Jackson and the boys and Jessica and 
Pop came up to visit the morning after I had spent the night there. And I'll never forget the scene that I saw that unfolded before me. Pop was sitting on one of those little toilet seats that they bring, you know, portable potty seats. He was sitting there, not using the bathroom, but just sitting there. And Jackson and Daddy came and sat on the bed opposite him, and they were facing each other very close proximity. And Jackson was in Daddy's lap, and Pappy was just looking at him. And they were talking, but the way that Pappy was looking at him, I'll I'll never forget because it was such a deep look. It was as if he was absorbing the love of his posterity, the love of his descendant, his flesh and blood before him. The same blood running through his veins in in this old, wrinkled body that had to help have help getting up and down, stuff being pumped in him. The picture of a young face, not even it lost, no loss of innocence yet, pure innocent child to the face of a an old man who's lived his life, who's seen many heartaches. The contrast between the two as they looked at each other. And I noticed that Jackson couldn't really look for a long time into Pappy's eyes, his sunken in eyes. Because death is something that's tough to look at. It's not what we want. It's hard to face. And yet, every year we take time to look at the death of Jesus Christ. And I couldn't help but think, of the contrast this morning is we're nicely dressed and we've taken showers and we've put on our deodorant and brushed our teeth and did these things to look nice and present ourselves nice. And then here's Jesus who is before us, if you think of Him as behind us, on a cross, naked, beaten, mocked, made fun of, dying, suffocating. The contrast is we don't really want to turn around. We would rather just look at each other. Look at what is nice. Look at our nice houses and our nice carpet and our nice children and friends and neighbors. But we take time to purposely focus on the man from Galilee. Jesus Christ, our Lord who is hanging on a tree, a tree that the Bible says anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed by God. And yet He's cursed for us so that we do not have to be cursed. The curse was given all the way back in Genesis 3 and He unwinds that here in this moment. In this God-forsaken moment, He unwinds all of what we've done. All the mess that we've gotten ourselves into. Again, since we're using a fishing analogy, you ever had a line get tangled up and get nested? Oh man, it's a disaster. He unwinds our disaster. How? By redoing what should have been done. In the garden, Adam had it made, and yet he failed 
to obey God. On the opposite side, Jesus didn't have it made. He didn't even have friends that cared enough to even stay awake and pray with Him. And yet He chose to obey God. Adam used the garden for food. And Jesus was hung on a tree. Adam died with no salvific help. And Jesus died with all the saving help in the world for us. He accomplished everything. He redeemed us. He bought us back. He redid what we could not do. And of course, after this, they confuse it, which we'll get to this story of the wine in another word following Sunday. But then you have, lastly here, the centurion's response. Which I think Mark is trying to say is the only true response to what is done here this day. His response is truly, this man was the Son of God. Do you know Jesus Christ this morning? Do you know, as Paul said, Jesus and Him crucified? Is that the Jesus you know? Or is it always a dressed up, nice, pictured Jesus? I would implore you this morning to look to the cross. Even though it's difficult, look into the face of the One who died, who faced death, who conquered death, and who brought victory to all people. You see, the dirty little secret in the world is that the sale door is unlocked, and yet people are in captivity captive to sin, imprisoned by our own doing. And yet the door is wide open, but they can't see. Jesus is the light of the world and He goes through everything for us. Do you know that He's gone through everything for you? If you don't, you can. You can know today. What better day than on a day when we look at Jesus's? cry from the cross, His cry of abandon. My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? And we go back and read that He is quoting from Psalm 22. And where does Psalm 22 end? On a note of great joy. That all people will come to God. Why? Because this one man is forsaken. We may not all understand what's going on here, but we do know this is a cry of abandonment, but it's also a cry of confidence at the same time. He has not forsaken God, and God has not forsaken Him, and God has not forsaken you. No matter where you are or what you've done, He has not forsaken you. You are His. He bought you with a price, with the price of His own life. And what He offers to you this morning, what He offers to me this morning, is His Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that helped Him persevere 
through this great dark hour of his life. So this morning, would you respond to the true Lent of moving from darkness to light? Or maybe from barren to fruitful? He can do it in your life. You are called to bear much fruit. Are you doing that? He can help. He's here to help. He's here to fill us with His Spirit. Let's all stand as we respond to this Word.